You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. And today, we're going to be talking with a friend of mine here from Iowa, He lives in the Mecca of what some might call the the Mecca of the the whitetail woods, and that's the the southern Iowa, right? The where dreams come from part of the state, right? He, He hunts in a really good, he hunts and lives in a really good part of the state, and he has the ability to chase really big deer, but it, it, it hasn't always been that way. And so today you're going to hear my buddy Tom Peplinski talk about the neighborhood he lives in, the amount of work that he has to do in a given year uh, on the properties that he hunts, you know, what his strategy is like throughout the years. And in the last two years or three years, this guy has killed two 200 inch deer and he's done it on on not a lot of property to be honest with you and so we talk about his technique how he approaches the entire year everything from the scouting identifying deer patterns and deer behavior uh, when he hunts how he hunts late season early season um, you know just the the whole gamut of how he finds success and I will tell you this before you say it must be nice or you know of course anybody can do that if they have that in Iowa uh, that's not the case man it, uh, it is not the case it takes hard work determination sacrifice and it also takes um, you know putting certain priorities right like myself my priority throughout the year is deer hunting is bow hunting and so I don't, I'm not a member of a a softball team. I don't collect stamps like I I joke about. I don't go to the bar. I don't like, I do stuff with my family and I deer hunt. And so I try to take care of the family. So when the time comes, I can go all in on, on deer hunting. 
And a lot of people just don't do that. And then they complain that, you know, they, they give an excuse. And when you give an excuse, you play the victim card. And, uh, dude, I, that's one thing that I just, I don't like to do and I don't like to hear. And so that's why I really like Tom's story, uh, because he, he gets the job done and he works for it and he focuses on it and he thinks about it. And, and the story of, you know, a couple of the deer that we talk about, uh, today in this episode is because he had to put the pieces of the puzzle together, make some adjustments on his property, put in a mock scrape, uh, move his tree stand and take some risks and ended up getting the job done. So that's what today's episode is about. Um, you'll, you'll hear us go, Iowa weather is crazy. Last week when we were, when we recorded this episode, it was you know, 45 degrees outside. We had a rainstorm come through today. It is Monday. Let's see. Today I'm recording this Monday, December 19th. It's five degrees outside and we got a little bit of snow on the ground. So that, that tells you how fast things uh, can change. And from a late season point of view here in Iowa, I'm really excited because I'm going to let this week go by. I'm going to let the, the shotgun season kind of uh, it's over now in Iowa, but I'm going to let everything kind of get back to normal, uh, if that's the word, uh, you know, let the let the deer herd settle back down from all the shotgun pressure. And then I think somewhere around the 26th or 27th, I'm going to get back out and I'm going to try to get the job done. I have two tags left. I have my late season any sex tag and I have one doe tag left. And so my goal is straight up, I'm filling those tags. And I'm going to fill them with probably the first two deer that walk by. Um, of course, I'm not going to shoot like a two-year-old buck or anything like that. But the goal is to fill the freezer. And so I'm if two does walk by and I have the opportunity to, to set down two does right away, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take that opportunity. Um, I'm not 100% focused on any type of buck unless... You know, a, a hit lister comes by or um, a deer that I'd like to get off the property kind of comes by. And so one thing about the place where I'm going, there is it is a, a, a lot of deer on this property. And so I believe that I need to remove some of those deer from that property just for herd stress. Right. Uh, one thing that my trail cameras have taught me and one thing that the deer uh, just sitting in the stand and observing is there there is a lot of deer in this neighborhood and I think that the property that I hunt would become even better if a couple deer were removed from that scenario and so we'll see what happens I'm going to give it the old college try I'm going to go try to arrow at least one doe uh, maybe two does maybe a, a buck if the opportunity presents itself but I'm really looking forward to uh, next week. It's supposed to be extremely cold. And if the uh, uh, if there's still some standing corn in the area or they're going to be hitting, I don't know, hitting some, uh, some late season food, I really think uh, it could get good over there. So it would be nice if I could get a little bit more snow. But with that said, I don't think it's going to be, uh, I don't think it's going to be an issue. So uh, late season, here goes nothing. But Commercials. We got to do commercials, right? So before we get into today's episode, we got to talk about Tethered. 
right? If you're looking for a saddle, saddle hunting accessories, climbing sticks, uh, platforms, everything saddle hunting related, Tethered has that. So go visit Tethered's website, see what products are right for you and stay on their website or visit their YouTube channel on how to become a better saddle hunter. They have tips, tricks, tactics, shortcuts, you know, things like that that allow you to flatten your learning curve when it comes to becoming a saddle hunter. So go check out Tethered's website on that. Wasp Archery, uh, just found out that Wasp wants to work with the Nine Finger Chronicles again this uh, for 2023. Um, extremely jacked about that. Those guys are great people with a great product. And it's uh, from a business standpoint, it's, it's very, it, it's good to have those kind of relationships. But from a, what really matters standpoint is that their head on the end of my arrow, I have extreme confidence in that. And so all the deer that I've killed throughout the years, a majority of, of them have been with a wasp broadhead. And uh, I just love the design. I love the damage that it does because ultimately that's what you want and is, is your broadhead to cause an extreme amount of damage on a marginal shot. And this year I, I unfortunately had a marginal shot, but I recovered my buck. And so that's a positive. That's because the broadhead did a shit ton of damage. So go visit wasparchery.com and enter the discount code NFC20 for 20% off. Hut stand, again, you know, here we are a couple days out of Christmas. If, you, if you're looking for something to give a friend, your brother, your your uncle, your dad, your, hell, even your wife or a new hunter and seasoned hunter, I would strongly recommend getting them the digital app hunt stand. And the reason for that is because it allows you to think about deer hunting outside of actually deer hunting. You can e-scout, you can organize your trail camera pictures, you can identify property boundaries, you can, it, it, it just allows your brain to be in it more. And when your brain is in it more, that means you're spending more time. And ultimately, becoming a better deer hunter requires more time in a given season. And I feel that hunt stand allows you to have more time thinking about deer hunting, which puts you in the right state of mind when you are actually deer hunting. So go check out huntstand.com, read up on all the functionality, uh, read up on their pro whitetail upgrade, really cool things coming out of hunt stand. And so I'm excited to be working with those guys. And then last but not least, Vortex Optics, the whole crew over there at Vortex. Um, I mean, if you're looking for a spotting scope, if you're looking for a rangefinder, binoculars, rifle scope, uh, what else? Red dots. If you're looking for a badass apparel line, go check out Vor the Vortex apparel line. Go check out all their optics, vortexoptics.com. Go check them out. Love the company, love the VIP warranty, and the, the clothing line is actually pretty badass too. So go check out uh, all of that over at vortexoptics.com. That's it. Commercial is over. Let's get into the good stuff with my buddy Tom Peplinski. Three, two, one. All right. On the phone with me today, buddy of mine, Tom Peplinski. Tom, how we doing, man? Real good, man. How you doing this Iowa soaked, uh, rainy day? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good, man. I tell you what, <laughs> I I hate to say this because I hope I, I truly do wish every shotgun hunter 
in Iowa gets out there and gets the job done. But there's a, a, a very small, selfish part of me that always prays for some bad weather during the Iowa shotgun seasons. Any, any gun season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, you know what, though? From my experience, at least around me, it seems like first shotgun gets hit hard, and then I don't really hardly see anybody for second shotgun. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, on the farms that I hunt, the my main farm, um, not not my new farm that I have access to, but the uh, the main farm that I've been hunting for you know a long period of time, just gets destroyed. Both first, second season, just drive after drive, and um, and the the trail cam, the cell cam picks that I have this year prove that. So. Uh, it's always it's always good to get give the deer a little break when a, a rainstorm comes through like the one we're having today. Yeah, I yeah, I it's there's nobody's going to be out at least not where I am. There's no way in hell I'd be hunting this stuff. Right, right. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about. Um, I think this is your first time on the Nine Finger Chronicles uh, podcast. But Tom has been, back when I was doing the Iowa Hunt Fish podcast and the Iowa Sportsman podcast, Tom was a regular on that. And I think I met you through writing for the magazine, and then I started the podcast for the Iowa Sportsman magazine, and that's kind of how we connected, I believe. Yeah, yep, that's exactly how we connected up. Yeah. How long, how long have you been an outdoor writer? Oh, I've had my blog, if you go on account that, since 2012. And then uh, I was contacted by Iowa Sportsman. And this is just a guess, maybe in uh, 2015, something gotcha. like that. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so right now, you've been, so roughly, you've been writing for about 10 years then? Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Are, are you still doing a lot of writing? Well, on my blog, my blog gets updated, and so every, so like starting now, I'll I'll have a late muzzleloader blog, and then I'll have a spring habitat blog, an archery blog, I, you know. So I I do that, but I don't I don't as you know I don't write for Iowa Sportsman Magazine right. anymore. Right. Okay. All right. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people in that I, that reach out to me all the time. And they're like, Hey man, what are, you know, what's, what's the quickest way or what's a, a good way to get your foot in the door in the hunting industry. And I always tell them, reach out to companies and, and just write articles for them. And because everybody's looking for content. Oh yeah. See, I haven't done a lot of that. When, uh, yeah. when I started writing, um, Iowa sportsmen reached out to me and I think they were just looking to fill a month and yeah. they, saw one of my articles that I had written on my website and then uh it just kind of went from there but yeah, yeah I, I don't I don't disagree yeah I don't disagree with what you're what you're saying yep yeah well any, anyway uh, that's how that's how we kind of met and then uh now I I hunt a farm you know pretty close to where where your farms are at and where and where you live and so I've got the opportunity to uh to meet you and and uh, shake your hand and whatnot and uh Here's what, here's what I will say is when I, when you invited me in your house and I, I got down into your little man cave basement there and looked at all the deer on the wall and what you pulled out of the freezer and what the success that you've had specifically in the last two years, I was just like jaw dropped. I mean, you have had some really good success 
over the the past you know handful of years, and and that's what I want to talk about today. Is that cool? That that's really and it's fun. Yeah, I like I like talking on anything deer hunting is fun. So yep. yeah, let's have it. All right, all right. So and I'll just say this: two years back to back, two or each year you've shot a 200 inch buck and both correct me if I'm wrong, but they're both archery bucks, right? Yeah. But actually my first 200 was uh, three years ago. So oh, was, three years ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 2020. And then in 2021, I got a nice buck, but it wasn't a 200 inch and then this year I did, but yeah. Yeah. So 2020 and then 2022. Okay. So, um, I shot my two biggest bucks. Yeah. But the, the buck last year was no slouch either. Right. So um, three years, you know, three great deer and then whatever else you have on the wall downstairs throughout the years. Let me ask you, let me ask you a a question. When you, when you set out every, every year, and maybe you can talk about the differences between 10 years ago versus what you're after today. Um, like how do you define success every, every single season? Well, you know, that, I think that's cool that you actually brought that up because it used to be that you, I remember when I was like a little kid in my tree stand and I would just sit there and think if I could only get an eight pointer and I'm talking like a little year and a half old 12 inch spread, you know, eight pointer. Yeah. And then it was always the next biggest buck and then the next biggest buck. And then boy, if I could shoot a 150. yeah. and then boy, I'd like to get something bigger. So it was always defined my hunting season success was always defined by the size of the buck I would shoot. Okay. And that was that was me. That that was how I defined it. Yep. And ironically, now that I'm shooting probably the biggest deer of my life, I that's not even how I define it anymore. I don't even go into the season saying, you know, I don't I don't want to shoot a buck unless it's a certain score. I define my hunting season as on Success is I want to hunt as much as I possibly can hunt to enjoy the outdoors. Um, now that my wife has started archery hunting again, I want her to have a fun, successful season where she gets to see a lot of deer. And then I like I like things like I want to be able to hunt near a bedding area and watch deer come into the bedding area and bed down and then watch them all day long, and then watch them get up and then leave. That To me, that's like almost like a little goal within the season. Yeah. So I have I have other things other than a deer, a certain size of a deer. Yeah. Now, now don't get me wrong. Like this year, this buck that we had called Ranger, the one that I got, was part of like a goal. Yeah. So I really wanted to target that animal. But it was it's more about the hunt for me now. It's not necessarily... I have to kill a big buck, although I want to. I'm not going to lie. I'm not yeah. going to be like and say that I don't want to. Of course I do. Um, but it's just it's having fun and and having a good hunt and uh, you know having a, a you know a, a challenge in a in a a plan of attack on a specific deer like ranger, kind of like a a personal challenge. Um, that's what makes a hunt for me successful is just being able to enjoy the season and. And kind of putting it all together. That, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but it really has changed. Yeah, for me. and and that's that tends to be the the stair step that we always talk about in on this podcast is you know when you're young, 
you know, you kind of go through a, a brown, it's down stage. I, you know, I'm not going to talk about my, my growth as a hunter. Cause mine skewed compared to what everybody else's was. But, you know, if you started hunting as a kid, you just kind of wanted to get anything. And then, you know, you see guys stair step up to, to where you're at now, they go through a big buck phase. They go through a, and you know, I want to only hunt a single buck stage. And then they go into like a, um, a stage where it almost becomes, you know, they, they just love being out in nature and helping others find success and it kind of sounds like you're you're transitioning into that stage of your hunting career. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's where I'm at. Yeah, that, that's where I'm at. So I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be the guy playing softball that every time he misses a ball he hurts his knee. You know, one of them kind of deals. So yeah. if I have a season where I go and I don't kill a deer, it's it's not because I didn't care. I I absolutely want to kill a nice deer. Yeah, but I don't define success that that way anymore at all. And yeah. I used to. And to me, it's it's way more fun going into the season without any of that, you know, pressure, if you want to call it that, of, God, I have to kill a big buck this year so that I can put it on social media and, and I can tell everybody, you know, about this success that I have. To me, yeah. it's not, I'm, I'm beyond, I'm beyond that. And I, and I used to be there, yeah. you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, I absolutely was there. A lot of pressure to, to try and harvest a big animal every year. Yeah. And then, you know, did that get old? Talk to talk to me about why the change of of you know hunting to kill a buck so you could you know and, and putting the pressure off yourself on yourself to just walking away from that kind and just hunting for the the purest reasons. Well, for starters, you'll never do it. You'll never you're never going to shoot the biggest buck. It, you know, it's like it's you're you're playing a game where the rules change every year and you can never win. Yeah. So if you're if you're in that mode, there's no way you you can succeed. Yeah. And then now with social media and all the money that's in the hunting industry and the TV stars and the YouTube stars and it's just it just to me it just kind of is getting out of control. So I, I don't I just and you know this so I don't really want to yeah. go I don't want to be Mister Negative on your podcast but you know that that's a huge turnoff for me is uh, yeah is like a competition over who can shoot the biggest and the most bucks. Yeah. Um, you know, when someone shoots a buck of, of their lifetime or their biggest buck, it, it should be all about their success and how happy they are. And too often today, somebody will shoot a really nice buck, and the first thing out of somebody else's mouth is, but did you see the one that this guy got? And it's I just, that, yeah. I just don't want anything to do with that anymore. Yeah. Even, it's almost like, I remember... I don't know, maybe eight years ago, right? The 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 big deal was 170. Like, if we're just talking inches here, everybody was like, dude, that dude shot a 170. Oh, my God, that's a huge deer, huge deer. But it's been, it's been I don't know if this is manufactured or, or what the term is or the word is here, but now it's 200. And now we're talking about 170 is a rare deer. And now here we're talking about the rarest of the rarest of the rarest deer in a, in a 200-inch deer. And it's almost like when people shoot a 170, 180 now, it's almost like, ah, cool. You know what I mean? Like, I'm personally blown away by those kind of uh, animals. And I just, like, I see it, it, that, that, that number dilutes the story. And people just, you know, 
you know, whatever. It's not this guy shot a this guy shot a big deer. This guy shot a big deer, but exactly what you just said. So I don't know that that kind of stuff just blows me away. Yeah, I just I'm I don't know I don't know how to explain it. I just turns me off, and then I think because of where I live, uh, I just see a lot of money and who you know. Yeah, and some of these guys have thousands of acres of land and a dozen farms or 15 farms and when something up comes up for lease like on uh, some of these lease websites and stuff they're taking it so yeah. they're, they're taking more land and and some of these people are shooting 170s every year and 190s every year and 200s every year and you just kind of take a step back and, and be like that's not that's not what the vast vast majority of anybody will ever experience in their life and it's just it's just a turnoff for me yeah i mean put it this way you know where i hunt because of the farm that you got access to this year yep i feel like i'm and i only have 80 acres here yep. i only have 80 acres right where we live here and of that 80 acres there's only uh, i don't know 15 16 acres of actual cover everything else is row crop yep and then i have permission to hunt a couple other farms in the area and I consider myself to be above and beyond what the vast majority of most people will ever experience in their life. Yep, same here. And then there's and then there's and then there's and then there's people who have thousands of acres and they're shooting these giant bucks every year. And you know, hats off to them. That's great. Yeah. But I I I'm not going to be. You know, if you want to use the word compete, I'm just not in that. Yeah. I, there's no way that most people will ever realistically have that opportunity in their life. So I just don't want to be part of that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. I feel you. Now, with all that said, I do want to talk about the last couple of years that you've had because you in fact have killed two 200 inch deer. And that is a, a feat in itself. So before we get into the, the how you've done this and how you've been successful throughout the years, the details there. I want to ask you the question, what do inches mean to you? Uh, so that's changed. So it used to be, it used to be everything. It used yeah. to be, that was the, the measure of a successful deer. Like we talked about now it's more, uh, friends and family and, and other people, if you tell somebody, hey, this deer was 207 inches, a lot of people are pretty passionate in the whitetail hunting. They know what that is. Yeah. So now they just, they can, you can, you can show a picture of a deer and a lot of, you know, you can hold it out in front of you four feet. Yeah. <laughs> it can look big. We all see that too. But if you tell somebody this deer scored 150 inches, this scored, 200 inches most people pretty instantly are like oh wow that's that's a big 10 pointer that's a really big 12 pointer it's just a it's a kind of a mental picture of really how big the antlers were on that animal yeah. but for me specifically it's it's cool again it's going back two two big bucks walk out in the field and one is a really big mature 110 inch eight pointer and the other one's a 200 inch 12 pointer who's not going to shoot the 200 inch 12 pointer yeah i mean so let's all be honest here but at the same time it's all for me when i go into the hunting season and i have target 
if I have a specific target buck or, you know, what are the couple bucks that I really would like to see this year? It's all about the history with the animal. And, you know, I saw this buck last year three times and, and stuff like that. To me, that's where when I go into the season, it's not about, it's not about inches. It's about a history with an animal. If I have it, that's, right. that's where I'm, that's where I'm headed into each season. Gotcha. All right. So as we can all, you know, uh, you know, removing the, the genetic oddity of maybe like a 172 year old, which, you know, are out there somewhere, right? Just these big young deer with just awesome genetics and they're going to score high. You know, usually it takes age to get a deer to get huge, right? And so what is it about some of the areas that you hunt that allow deer to not only get to a higher age class, but potentially, you know, maximize their genetics and grow the big, big antlers? So let me let me break it down into the two different the two different farms. I have a 120 acre farm. Yep. Um, and I don't archery hunt that hardly at all. And the reason why is because since we bought it back in 2012, we've actually like leased it, or if you want to say sold hunts on it. Yep. And that was to help help pay taxes and help pay food plots and stuff like that. And then we use that farm as more of a late season muzzleloader hunt for my son and my daughter who are non-residents. Yep. So they would, they would come down and late muzzleloader hunt it. But that farm has just extremely, extremely low hunting pressure, like even the shotgun seasons. So several years ago, I went out um, first shotgun, first morning, which you would expect to be like the peak of, of the shotgun seasons. And I, I barely heard, any shots and they were distant distant you know couldn't even really tell where they were coming from yeah so that farm has just extremely low hunting pressure so the deer there are just allowed to grow unless unless someone i think during archery season shoots somewhere and i'm sure there's people who do uh shotgun hunt um i've talked to one of the neighbors that does shotgun hunt but i think it's just there's just so few people in the land the landowner um, acreage is higher too. So there's, you know, 120 acres and 200 acres and 400 acres. So it's just less people and big chunks of land. Yeah. Okay. So, so that would be, that's one scenario. Right. So you're, we're talking pressure. All right. So the pressure, the, yep. the lack of hunting, the ability to get uh, a deer to uh, an older age class. Now that's great. If you control, uh, you know, if you control a big swath of land, but at the same time, that, you know, and I, I'd love to hear your opinion on it, but even on, you know, the, some of the farms that I hunt, which are, you know, the, the big farm that I hunt is 480 acres in total, right? And still deer come in and out of that farm all the time. So even if you have a certain amount of acreage, we have to understand that deer don't just stay on certain properties. They, they migrate throughout the season. So Along with that, how much of it is is the neighbors also having low pressure or high standards for age class? Well, a lot of it is, but so in that in that first example I gave you, I'm I'm fairly lucky that it's a like-minded neighborhood. Gotcha. So, 
However, however, I know of hunters, and myself included, I, I would put myself in this category where if you really want to grow a two-year-old to a three-year-old, so not necessarily a world-class, giant, scoring, seven-year-old buck, but you just want to get that two-year-old from three, there's decisions, there's things that you can do even on an 80-acre piece or a 40-acre piece or a small parcel to help the process. So, and that's, I don't know if you want to get into that, but that's better habitat. That's making sure you have a good food source during the gun season. So it doesn't matter when your gun season is. There's gun seasons all over the Midwest that are in November. Ours Ours are in December. But making sure you have a good food source that targets that time of year. Yeah. And then... Staying out of your property or, or, you know, having your property with good habitat and it's nice and thick so that you call home to several deer. Because that time of year, once you get into, into, into December, you actually can keep a buck on a 40-acre parcel and they won't leave. Yeah. If you have great habitat, low pressure, and a good food source, they won't leave. Yeah. So you don't. You know, when we're talking that you can't keep them on your property and they're, and they're going to go out, that's, that is during the breeding season. That's during the rut. So there's no way you can keep archery hunters in the area from killing small deer if they're inclined to do so. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah. I have no problem with an archery hunter shooting a deer that I wouldn't shoot. It, never, it has never bothered me in my life ever if a neighbor shoots a buck that I passed up. It doesn't bother me. Yeah. But there's things that I, but there's things that I can do to potentially help that two-year-old or that three-year-old get to the next age class. And that's, those are decisions that I can make. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, obviously you live in a a good neighborhood. You have a, uh, where, you know, a majority of the people are, are looking for a higher caliber deer. And then, you know, from a habitat standpoint, we've talked about the food, right? The cover, the water, all, all basic necessities for a whitetail. Now we are in this, this, um, this December timeframe and we're talking about what keeps deer on certain properties over the years of you learning and now implementing habitat management on some of the, the farms that you have access to. What has there been a, uh, I guess let me rephrase this. What has been the biggest contributing factor to keeping deer on your property uh, during that those shotgun seasons or those gun seasons? Or uh, answer it that way, and then also an answer it from just a, a deer on your property year long standpoint. So it's when when people hear habitat, I think a lot of times the first thing they think of is food plot. Yeah. And I would, and I would say that that's part of it, but that's, that's not first. That's last. Yeah. So I, I would say it's, it's thick cover um, is number one, having thick cover where there's woody browse and vegetation that deer can eat all day long and not have to leave your property until the sun goes down for their evening feeding pattern. So that, that would be number one, and that's all year. So that that's from archery opener, from the day of, of archery season starts all the way until the end of 
the whatever late season you have, including the the high hunting pressure time periods, whatever your gun season is. So that's number one. Number two is it's probably equal with it is your your hunting pressure, the amount of the amount of hunting pressure you put on your property, regardless of whether it's thirty acres or three hundred and thirty acres. Yeah. So you can you can have really good habitat and go nuts with food plots. And if you're walking in and out of your property and you're bumping deer and you're and you're walking in the center of your property because you got this really cool food plot in the middle of your property and you hunt the hell out of that and stuff like that, you will actually push deer off of your property, even though it's it may have the best habitat and the best food plots in the area. Then it'll be completely void of deer because you'll you'll burn it out. Yeah. I use I I use that term. Yeah, for sure. Back home when I back home when I was growing up, you you used to see now not thirty five years ago, but when when like more habitat and food plots and stuff started to become popular, you you actually saw some of these guys who never did anything with their property ever. So they they started worrying about hunting the Friday before the gun opener. Yeah. That's it. They didn't do any food plotting. They didn't do any habitat work, nothing. And, and a lot of times, a lot of years, they would kill the nicest deer in their neighborhood the first day of the gun season. And it's because all the other hunters that were going nuts with the habitat and the food plots were simply doing that. They were going nuts with it, and they were pushing all the deer into wooded areas that weren't even the best habitat, but nobody was hunting them in there. Yeah. And then the first day of the gun season, boom, that deer goes down. And then everybody's like, how can that guy kill a deer? He doesn't even know what he's doing. He doesn't even know how to hunt. Well, it's because it's because of what he wasn't doing. (laughs) It got him that deer. Yeah. And so I kind of learned, I kind of learned from that, that if, if one of your goals like mine is to be able to hunt as much as I possibly can, that means I, I have to do like what I call, a, you know, I kind of stole this term from an elk hunter, but it's a, it's a slow play for me. Yeah. It's, I'm going to hunt the edges and the, the fingers and a lot of observation sits, but that way I can maximize my time in the field and have the most fun I can, but I can keep deer in my bedding areas and, and not burn it out. Right. Right. All right. So now I have to talk about the property that you live on, right? And this is no joke, people. When he says 80 acres with 15 acres of cover, he's not lying. It is a it is a field with a finger in it or two, right? And so I look at that from the road and I go, man, there's no there's no deer. There's no deer in there, but there is deer in there and they're using your property. So what specifically about your property makes it so attractive to not only just deer, but big mature deer. Well, that's what we just talked about. Yeah. It's I've maximized the habitat. So one of the first things I did when we bought the property is the bottom ground was solid canary grass, which if people aren't familiar with canary grass, it, it grows to seven, eight feet in the summertime. But as soon as it seeds out and you get into like August, it just falls over and it lays down and it, it can be like four inches tall. I mean, it just lays right over. Yeah. So one of the first things I did is I terminated all that canary grass over several years. 
and I planted um, all switchgrass, warm season grasses in that entire bottom. And I know that's kind of a, people are like, oh, switchgrass, you got to plant switchgrass. Well, I needed, I needed to do something with that canary grass. So my best option was to get rid of that, put switchgrass in. And then now over the years, I've actually started terminating the switchgrass in different pockets. And I'm, lo- and I'm allowing the native seed bank as well as wild plum, um, willows. There's some dogwood in there. I'm letting that come back up through when I'm terminating that switchgrass. Um, because just grass is, isn't really any good, and that canary grass was awful. So yeah. I'm doing the best I can to manage the habitat the way I can. <clears throat> I planted about, I don't know, six feet wide of cave and rock switchgrass around all of my field edges so that there's a nice visual buffer between that really sparse cover, those strips we talked about, those draws, and the row crops. So that allows those deer to be in there, even if they could be bedded in there. Amy and I have already been hunting and, and saw deer bed bed right in that switchgrass, right off the field edge, and we've watched them stand right up, and they're right off the row crops. Yeah. And I don't think we could do that if that if those buffer strips weren't planted in there. And I and and those buffer strips are actually good for the environment too because they stop water runoff and nutrient runoff, and so it's yeah. it's an all around good idea. Yeah. And then the few trees that are in there, I've terminated some of the trees that I just don't think that they like. Um, and I've tried to make other trees that they do like as far as woody browse species. I've tried to keep those in there and, and hinge cut some of them. So I've done everything I can to maximize the habitat. And then the next thing that it's just that slow play. It's just we yeah. hunt the edges and our access is phenomenal and a bad, bad, bad night of hunting would be, would to see would be to see five, six deer, seven deer, and have one bump us, have one get downwind, or you're climbing down onto your stand and you didn't realize, and a doe starts snorting because she busted you. That's a bad night on stand for us with this small property here. Yeah. So so we do everything we can to make sure that we go in clean, we hunt clean, and we're out clean, and we have strategies on how to make sure that all that happens yeah and when it's go time all right maybe you have trail camera information maybe you see a deer when it's go time and it's time to hunt seriously how much pressure then are you applying to that property hunting pressure before you back out as to try not to ruin it again or to overpressure it well some of some of the spots I feel some of the spots can be hunted quite a bit during the hunting season. So let's just say the hunting season is October, November. You got eight weeks. I'm going to say some of those spots can probably get hunted eight times a, a season. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a week apart. Sometimes we'll hunt them two days in a row. Um, but I'm just trying to think through. I think we have six different setups on this little bitty 15 acres here and we just try and you know move around between those six and then we also have some permission land so i'm not you know i don't want to say that we hunt this every single day for two months yeah but it's 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 all based on the access dan if if the access was like not very good 
you wouldn't be able to hunt some of those stands eight times. There's no way you could do it. Right. But because we're hunting the edges and our access is through the neighbor's cow pasture, for example, we're able to get in so clean. I mean, crawl over the fence. I have a ladder built over the cow fence. You crawl over the this little homemade ladder right up into this giant black walnut tree, for example. You can hunt there with a south wind. Everything's in front of you all night long. And then at quitting time, as long as there's not a deer in front of you, you can get down, crawl over that ladder, sneak out through that cow pasture. That's yeah. another thing I'll bring up is we don't hunt over food. We don't hunt over any food sources. So we're not ever in a situation where we're hunting an evening hunt and we have six six dozen fawns, let's say, down on this food source right right below us. We don't do that. So all of our food is 400 yards to the east of where the majority of our hunting is. That's where our food is. Yeah. And so, we, and we so you do that. We, you do that so the deer are coming by you, but not stopping. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. So we'll have in in, in in I'm trying to think. In most cases, we have a mock scrape there. There's a you know a couple of the spots are like ditch crossings that I've made better through the years by just taking the bucket of my, of my tractor because those ditches, those ditches down there are pretty, pretty steep. So deer can go down them and up them, no problem. But if you give them something that's a little easier, they'll they'll take it. Yeah. So a couple of those stands are on what we call ditch crossings. So I'll, I've taken the bucket and I've just made it easier for them to go up and down, and so they, they use those a lot. And then there's a mock scrape there, and that's just to try and get, you know, if you have a buck that you want to shoot, maybe you'll slow them down a little bit. Plus there's a, a good spot for a camera. Uh, there's a couple fence jumps, so we're surrounded. Well, on one side, it's all cow pasture, so I've improved that fence really good. Yeah. And then I've actually taken and left a spot where it's bad, so then obviously all the deer will want to use that. So it's been a process to try and coax or force the deer to do what we want them to do Yep. to take advantage of where our access is and where our tree stands are. So it's it's kind of a little bit of a process there, but the end goal is to be able to hunt it and not have the deer, you know, know that they're being hunted. But one of the, one of the keys I think that people lose is we've, a lot of hunters have become food plot hunters. Yeah. So because of the, the popularity of food plots have just grown and grown and grown. And they're such a great source of attraction and people got their cameras on them and everything that the temptation to hunt right over that food is really high. And I'm not saying you can't do that, but when you have a little bitty, if you have 80 acres with 15 acres and you want to hunt it all season, you really can't, it's really hard to do that. So we put all of our food way away from our tree stands, way away. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and so the habitat management part of it is, you know, is talked about. Is there, so here's what I'm, there's, there's three categories here that obviously when in conjunction with one another just makes a really good recipe for big deer big older age class deer we have we have low pressure we have high age class and then we have habitat management is there one of those three that you feel outweighs the other or you know 
you know, you might be able to throw your neighborhood in there as well. You know, the, the people around you, but is there one of those three things that holds more weight than the other? Well, yes. So I would say as long as there is some amount of habitat, so, so there's, there's gotta be something there to hold the deer. I mean, right. you can't, if you're going to be hunting a, let's say a cow pasture with a hundred head of cattle in there and everything is browsed right to the ground, there's really not a lot you're going to do with anything else that's going to, you know, hold deer in that, in that woodlot. Yeah. So there's got to be something there, but as long as there's something there, if then it's, then it's hands down the number one thing that, that prevents people from, you want, if you want to say protecting deer to get to the next age class yeah. or having some decent hunting opportunities throughout the season, it's, it's the hunting pressure. It's their own, and this is going to sound really bad, but I'm not trying to cut anybody down, but it's their own decisions and their own, the own things that they're doing right. that are making, that are making their hunting poor. Yeah. Yeah. By just putting a lot of pressure. There's, there's a permission farm that I have that has marginal habitat at best, but I'm not going to go in and, and just start, you know, asking the landowner, Hey, can I cut a bunch of trees down? And I'm just not going to get into that. I'm just, I'm grateful that they let me hunt it. So that's all I do is I do, I do this slow play and I let the deer have certain areas of that property. And that's, that's a phenomenal whitetail hunting property. I just can't get over how many deer are in there. And the reason is the neighbors are not doing that. The neighbors yeah. are driving their four-wheelers around, and during shotgun season, they drive their land out. And that property that I have permission to hunt, even though it's marginal, holds the majority of the deer right in that small area just because of hunting pressure. Okay. Okay. That, that's my opinion. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, so you've kind of laid out the groundwork here for the, um, you know, for what makes the farms that you have access to really good, the age class, the, the you know, the habitat management, the neighbors, all that stuff. Now, I want to talk about the last three years specifically, because this year you killed a 200-inch giant. Last year you killed a giant. The year before that you killed another 200-inch giant giant and so let's talk about maybe what these deer were doing where they were living how they were moving through the terrain and and i guess utilizing the habitat work that you did so in in both cases on the on the two 200 inch deer it was uh well, one was the second weekend of archery, so that was an early October deer, and yep. that was a strictly bed-to-feed pattern, bedding on my property. Um, in that case, it was using a, the deer was using a really small uh, transition food plot. There was actually two different food plots that the deer was using. And then when I say transition food plot, I just want the listeners to understand that my transition food plots are, are poor. They're not very attractive. I mean, if you would if you would take a picture of one and then send it to your buddy, they would say, "Really? That's that's what your that's your food plot." And I do that on purpose because I don't want the deer coming in there and hanging around and and getting all their calories and feeding there and then going back to bed. It's just something where I can 
hopefully get them to walk through, nibble a little bit, mock scrape, and then move out and then, and then leave and then go to, you know, the hay field, the alfalfa field, something like that. So in that case, that really big deer was doing just that. And he was using one of, one of two different draws. I only had one camera that was picking them up, but it was picking them up every single day. Um, but right at dark. So like after, after legal shooting light. So I just had to figure out, okay, where is he 15 minutes before that? It was one of two draws. The draw that I thought he was using, um, I hunted opening night and didn't see him. I think I got to remember. No, I'm sorry. The draw that I thought he was using, I sat an observation stand opening night to see if he was going to be using that draw. Yeah. Because I didn't know exactly where he was going to be, and I didn't want him to get downwind of me and bust me the first night. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see him. So then two nights after, we had a different wind direction, and I could use a stand that I had in a different draw that I thought he could be using on his way out to um, the alfalfa fields. And sure enough, he, he came through that came through that transitionary, and I shot him, I don't know, half hour before, yeah. before sunset. So that was a 100% bed-to-feed bed to feed pattern, bedding on my property in the in the habitat that I created over the years, and actually using the neighbor's alfalfa as his primary food source. Okay. But he was I'm sure I'm sure he was getting there after dark. Gotcha. So and, yep. with in that scenario, how far do you think that deer was moving from his bed to that main food source and back? How what what was that distance traveled estimate? Uh, I'm just trying to think here. It was about 600 yards from where he was bedding to the alfalfa. And then I don't know if, you know, my guess is he was probably eating on the alfalfa and then bedding out there somewhere during the night. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, more towards morning, he would work his way back to his bedding area. So 600 yards in one direction and back. Gotcha. And where I killed him, where I killed him was almost smack dab in the middle. And that's, it's not like I'm like, Oh, I have to be in the middle. So I don't want anybody thinking that, that I picked that spot. I picked that spot simply because of the entrance that was available to me. Yeah. The stand that I would, that I could hunt with the wind direction I had. And then how close can I get to, you know, this deer's potential bedding area without, without bumping them. And it worked out perfect yeah. that night. Yeah, that's awesome. So it sounds to me like, um, and, and was this deer consistent? Like, uh, were, were you getting trail camera pictures or visuals of him, not only during the season, but leading up to the season as well? I mean, did you know he was there and know he was working that, that line? Well, I, own, I had several cameras on that, on that farm. Um, I didn't have a single cell. In fact, at that point, I didn't own a... I didn't own a cell camera. Yeah. So these are all the old, you have to check them. Yep. <clears throat> and I had checked cameras, I, I want to say like maybe September 29th or something like that, Dan. Yep. And I had this buck pretty consistently. And now I don't want to say every single night, but a lot on this one camera on a transition food plot. And he was always walking like toward this alfalfa field, which I, which, okay, that makes sense. He's eating out on this alfalfa because it was a really, really nice alfalfa field. Yeah. 
So then from my point of view, it's like, okay, where, where is he coming from? Cause this is at, you know, this is past shooting. So I need to move back a hundred yards, 150 yards. I need to move back somewhere to cut him off. So yes, I mean, it was, it was early season bed to feed pattern, which is probably other than January. It's the easiest, you know, time to pattern a buck if you're going to do it. Yeah. And, uh, I just, it was a multiple choice. It was one of two different, one of two different draws he was using. And it happened to be the one I set up on, you know, on, it was October 3rd when I killed him. Gotcha. Did water come into play at all, or does it come into play on some of these farms? No, that on that farm, there's water. I'm, I don't want to tell somebody that they shouldn't have a water hole or something, but on that farm that year, um, it wouldn't have mattered. There was there was a water, there's a pond there in one of the draws that I could have hunted. Um, the night I killed them, um, I believe it was actually raining a little bit, like misting type of thing. Yep. But uh, no, water, for that specific hunt, water played no role at all. Gotcha. Okay. All right. All right. So, uh, and then the next year, uh, the deer that you shot in 2021 was that also on your farm or was that on your permission farm permission farm permission farm now what was that deer doing during whatever time of year it was that was that was november hunt downwind side of bedding yeah traditional me and you yeah you and you have talked about that before so i got into the stand really early warm day i think it was Oh, geez, I think it was in the 70s, if I remember right. I was in a T-shirt and a pair of probably black jeans or something like that, and uh, I killed him at like 3 or 4 in the afternoon. And yeah. uh, I don't remember the exact date, but I want to say like November 8th, maybe, something like that. Yeah. And it was down down one side of bedding. So <clears throat> there's a couple of my both on my farms and permission farms where you can get in close on the downwind side of bedding and you can sit there from sun up till sundown and see deer all day long. Yeah. Now, not, not necessarily that they're in range, but you'll see them walking around and then, and then sit back down. And then an hour later, you'll see something else walking around and then bed down and stand up and they're just in and out of there all day. Yeah. And these bucks, these bucks are in and out of there all day. But if you can sit on the downwind side of that bedding area, obviously your scent's not blowing in there. <clears throat> and then you're just you're just playing this edge game. You're just you know, whether it's a ditch crossing or, or something else, to try and get the try and get the movement within bow range. Right. And then and then eventually you'll get that shot. Yeah. But that that specific buck was with two or three other bucks and a handful of does and there might have been a hot doe in there that day. I'm not sure. But he was actually going into the bedding area, and I actually let him get past me because he was he was probably 60 yards away at one point, and I didn't do anything. I let him get past me, and he was probably 100 yards away before I stopped him with a grunt call, and then I grunted at him again and brought him in. And I had to do that because the way my wind was blowing, I had to actually let him get past me and, and way like upwind so that when he would come in, he won't be coming in downwind and it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a good point, man. I don't know how many times when I, when I was younger, I didn't do that. And the deer eventually come in downwind and they bust you, whether it's rattling or a grunt call. 
and so if your if your wind is not locked tight then uh then or you know if you're the the downwind of you isn't locked tight uh they'll come downwind of you <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah I, I i waited until this guy was was well i mean i'm sure he could have made a big loop but at that time of year in the rut they're not they're not going to make a big loop if, if they're going to come in and come in they're just going to come right in and that's what he right. did right all right so more of a tradi- traditional setup there um and then let's see the the buck that you shot this year right the the 200 incher that's on your your small farm again correct yeah so this this if you're if you'll indulge me a little bit well i know we're getting up on that hour but it's really kind of a cool story absolutely so my wife found this buck the year that i shot my 200 incher on my other farm yep she found this buck in late october and i was hunting with my uh, landowner tag and she wasn't hunting at the time she hasn't bow hunted for i don't even know 30 years something like that but she would just go out and glass and just on a nice day she would just like sit in the ranger way away from anything and just glass just to have fun so she's telling me there's this giant buck that she keeps seeing. And I believe her. She she knows what she's doing. Yeah. So it's not it's not like I'm like, oh, what is she, she ain't really seeing this buck. And she's telling me this is like a world-class buck she's seeing. And so one day we had like, uh, I don't know if we had winds that were just swirling around all over or variable winds or something. And, and I didn't know where to go. And she's like, you should come sit with me. I bet you we see this buck again tonight. So we go out there and sure enough, we see this buck. And it's huge, and I'm looking at it with my spotting scope. And the very first time we saw this buck together, we're glassing, and we can see, like, where it's bedding and, and what jaw it's using and what finger it's using from a long distance. And uh, sure enough, that muzzleloader season, like one of the first nights of muzzleloader season, I passed this buck up, and this buck is like 215 inches like now i'm going back to this inches thing but this buck is huge and a part of me is like this isn't right i'm not gonna amy found this deer she's been watching it in the fall it's i I just couldn't do it and it was like a blizzard whiteout conditions but i had him at about 125 yards with my muzzle loader and and you passed a 215 inch deer because it wasn't right because it's like i didn't i didn't do it I didn't put myself on this deer. Amy did. Yeah. And, and she wouldn't have cared. It's not like she would have got upset about it, but I'm like, this ain't, I'm going to let it go. It's already made it through the bow season. It's already made it through the shotgun season. Yeah. It's in our backyard. I'm just going to let it go. Jesus just, for, Christ. To me, to me, it didn't feel, it just didn't feel, I didn't want to do that to her. I wanted her to have a chance. And, and I knew she was going to start bow hunting the following year yeah. again. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So, 2021 comes around, and in the spring, my son Forrest and I, we went and we hung a couple stands to do this, you know, what we call slow play. We're going to hunt this edge of this little finger where he's where he's coming out, and every time we see him, he's got other little bucks and does and stuff with him, and so it's like, well, we can't we can't go in there. We can't get in right where he he uses this little finger. <clears throat> so the plan is. We're going to use this slow play, and I hauled a decoy in for Amy. We put a stand in there for her, and I said, well, we're going to set this decoy up, and then, you know, later parts of October, November, 
If this buck comes out, we'll run at him a couple times. You'll see the decoy come in and we'll kill him. So we do that, but he could care less about the decoy. <clears throat> so you had encounters with him in 2021. Oh, we, we saw him a, a bunch. We saw him a bunch. I filmed him one night for probably 20 minutes. The closest he was was like maybe 80 yards. But the plan to, to bring him out of this cover using this decoy, he just could care less. The night I filmed him, I waited, I waited, I waited, and pretty soon I'm like, okay, I guarantee you he can see this decoy. There's no way he can't see this decoy. And I pop my grunt call, and he stops, and he looks, and he just turns away. And I hit it again, and he stops, and he looks, and he kind of stretches his neck out. You know how they do that? Yep. And he's looking right at the decoy, and he's like, I don't, I don't care. Why? Well, I don't need to go over there. I got five does next to me and a couple little bucks, and I'm on a bed-to-feed pattern. I mean, I can just tell that if you could think this is what he's thinking. Why do I want to go over there? Yeah. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, it's middle of November, and we're doing this slow play. And two things happen. One, we quit seeing this buck. We're just done. Mm-hmm. We'd never see him again. No camera, no nothing. Second thing that happens is right about the same time, a big deer gets poached right over by our house, and its head's cut off. Oh, Jesus. So we're, we're thinking, you know, is that this buck we nicknamed ranger and we nicknamed him ranger because every time amy saw him she was on our ranger so that's yeah. <laughs> that's how we nicknamed him yep so from like november 10th of 2021 all that season and all of this off season this year i'm talking all summer all fall everything no sighting no camera nothing of this buck so the night that i go in there well i'm gonna take a little bit of a step back so in 2022 now this spring there's a stand we put right down in the middle of his ship. I mean, it's right, it's right there yeah. where we saw so many times where he's using this little finger. Yep. But you go in there and it's high risk. It's you know, it's it's the opposite of what I like to do. Yeah. But I'm like, hey, 2021 it didn't work. He he could care less about a decoy. He's not leaving that little draw, and that was that was his bed to feed pattern there. So the night I go in, October 28th, don't even know this deer's alive. Assuming, kind of half assuming this deer's probably been poached the year before. However, I'm going to go in because we have this southeast wind, and it's, I'm like, hey, we're not going to have a southeast wind for whatever. And last year he disappeared mid-November. I'm going to be more aggressive with him this year. Even if I blow him out of there, what I did last year didn't work. Yeah. So I go in on October 28th in that little draw and I get deer around me and it's everything the opposite of what you want to have happen, but it all worked out and I kill him on October 28th in that, in that little finger, that little bit of finger cover that Amy saw him use two years ago over and over and over again. Yeah. So, you know, I got to give her about 90% credit for even finding that deer because if she hadn't found that deer using that little bit of cover that he was using, I don't know that I would have even killed them. Yeah. Yeah, that's nuts. That's absolutely crazy. And so and so in t- 2020 you saw this deer and so th- this is what blows my mind. At one point you had two 200-inch deer on your very small farm. No, one on one on my 120 acre that I killed and then one on behind the house. 
Okay. But the yep. the two the two oh, okay. So the first the first one was on the other farm. Yep. Oh, okay. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Yep. All right. And so <laughs> I mean what what just out of curiosity, what were the age classes or the age roughly of these two deer that you shot? The first one I don't have a a ton of history with him, um, but I think he was six. Okay. And then the one I shot this past fall, I believe was seven. Seven. Okay. All right. So a two hundred and fifteen inch four year old and and just from talking to you, I you I know he was gigantic he blew he even gained what what did you what do you think he was in 2021 um so in 2020 i i put him at 215 last year i said he was 220 is what i said last year yeah and then this year he got smaller but he was he was hurt last so last year when we saw him and I'm not exaggerating, Dan. I want to say we saw him like a dozen times with our own eyes. Yeah. So we, we saw him a lot. And his front left shoulder was hurt pretty bad to the point where um, he wouldn't jump a fence. He would crawl underneath it, which is pretty rare to see a, a pretty big buck crawl under a fence. Yeah. In, in my opinion, anyways. But he would crawl, and then he had a really bad limp on his left front shoulder. Huh. And then... uh so he, he actually shrunk, if you want to, I mean, if you can believe that, he shrunk yeah. to 202. Yeah. So he was he was bigger the last two years, and I think it might have been because of that. Injury. Because of that injury, he probably had a tough winter. And I don't know if this is true. I think we talked about this when you got your deer and came over and were, and were BSing in my driveway. But I've heard someone say once that if a, if a let's say, a mainframe 10-pointer goes the classic g2 is the tallest then g3 is shorter g4 is the shortest kind of like that that ramping yeah and then and then all of a sudden it's five years old or six years old and that g2 is shorter than the g3 when in previous years that had always been the longest time someone had told me that that's if they had a really bad winter because when it was developing the g2 which is the first time to develop yeah after the brow time that's when it was still replacing um, nutrients and calcium and stuff in their own body because they had a terrible winter. Huh. And coincidentally, that's what he had this year. His G2s were shorter. He dropped the forks. He had fork G2s. The, G2, the forks were gone. Um, and you can just tell from the video footage I took of him that one night that just a giant buck, but you could just see it was a, it was just it was a little bit smaller. Yeah. So I th- I think he was probably 220 last year and 202 this year, but it's just a beautiful, just yeah. a beautiful buck. Just uh, in a, to me that's, I don't care if it was 140 inches. The story behind it and and being able to hunt them and see them so many times and stuff and then, and then being able to kill them. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll say, I'll say one other thing because it's just fun telling this story. I don't. I don't lose my shit anymore. I used to. If a spiker came in when I was 12 years old, I would just lose it. Yeah. And now, like the last 15 years, I don't. I just, I don't lose it anymore. But when that buck came in, and it's it's a kind of a long story. I know we don't have time to get into it. But I knew it was a big buck, but I didn't know it was this buck that we had called Ranger. 
until he was at like 40 yards because he was behind some stuff. Yeah. But when he came out and exposed himself, I instantly lost it. I mean, I was <laughs> convulsing. I was convulsing. And I had a hard time putting my release on my D-loop. I was shaking yeah. that bad. Yeah. So that's that's so when you go back, how do you define success? For me, it was being able to put a hunt together that was three years long on an animal like that. To me, it was like that's that's to me what does it. Yeah. And And what's cool about that is when you lost it, that tells even after all these years of hunting, that tells me you're still you still get excited and you're still passionate about it and not just, you know, not a guy who's just out there just trying to kill deer with big antlers. Yeah, I just it was it was something special that night, I'll tell you. And what's really neat is that night, that same exact night, my wife was hunting a different farm on for a different target buck and she shot her first ever archery buck that same night oh that's awesome that that was yeah that was a that was a good night in the peplinski household for uh archery season yeah well yeah absolutely and that's a memory that you guys will have forever yeah yeah that was a good night Yep. so the last question i i have for you is you know i i know the answer to this right and so it's just genetics and and circumstance that big antler deer you know, you've had the opportunity to, to go after some big antlered deer. But, but from a mature buck, big buck, old buck standpoint, what do these deer do through your observation, from you being just to a, able to, you know, to watch them through all these years, what do they do that typically hunters mess up on? Right, so that gives the deer the advantage, and that the hunter makes the mistake and they lose the the chess match. So I think I think that's an individual deer thing. I think some deer, some deer, when they're very young and they find their home range and where they like to bed down, they just don't pick a good spot. Yeah, it's 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 almost like unlucky. They they don't have any idea that this neighbor has 15 guys hunting and they're going to drive it out every day and they're going to get hammered. They don't, it's just kind of an unlucky thing. Yeah. Um, these, these deer picked my farm because it had phenomenal habitat. And I don't, this is bad to say, but some of the neighbors that I have here who could hunt the deer that I, the deer that I killed this year did not spend the lion's share of his life on my farm. Yeah. He didn't. And I don't want to, I don't want to give away the whole thing here because I just, I don't want, if, if one of my neighbors is listening to this, I don't want them to, I don't want to give it all away here, Dan. But <laughs> I, I don't blame you. You got something good but going. These, some of my neighbors could hunt, could hunt that deer. And in my mind, they never had a chance because I know how they get, how they're getting into their stands and their access is awful. And they just do the same thing every year. You know, they park the truck where they park the truck and they park the truck in the other spot where they park the truck. And I know where they're walking in. It's like, if I know where they're walking in doing this, the deer haven't figured out too. Yeah. And so Amy and I are are the exact opposite. We park in different spots. We walk in different spots consistently so that we're not patternable so that the deer aren't patterning us. And then we're moving around 
and then we'll take a week off and then we won't even hunt our farm for a week to 10 days until all of a sudden we get a really good wind or something like that. And then we'll hunt it for a couple of days. And, um, I just, I just think that the deer that make it to seven and a half are just a little bit luckier than the ones that, that don't make it to seven and a half yeah. because it's the wrong, it's the wrong place. They picked the wrong area when they were very young, when they were nubbers and year and a half olds, they picked the wrong area um, to call their home. Yeah. <clears throat> but that, but that being said, we provide, you know, low pressure and good habitat so that they spend as much time as they can on our farms. But that's the, that's the bottom line. I, I really think um, yeah. on why these deer get big is they, and let you know, I've I've seen studies where me and you were talking about uh, Bronson Strickland here the other day when you were over. They they got some good radio collar studies that show that some deer are just nuts. They're just very active and they're yep. just moving around. That you know that individual when it's two years old, yep, and a different two year old acts like a grandpa already, yep. or it's just not very active. Well, which deers? If you take a hundred of a hundred two year olds that move around a ton, and a hundred of them that don't move around a lot. The ones that don't move around a lot are the ones that are going to make it to three and a half. Yeah. And then extend that out to five or six or seven. That's why these seven-year-olds are hard to kill or six-year-olds are hard to kill because they were the group that just doesn't move around a lot. Yeah. And this, this buck I shot behind the house didn't move around a lot. And so you tell me where he went from early, mid-November last year until the night I killed him. I can't, I can't tell you. I got an idea. Yeah. But – I can't tell you for sure because I don't, you know, I don't have them radio collared. But yeah. probably you know, in a hole somewhere like, and just, eat just yep. like uh, uh, this smallest core area. Yep. And what I did is I used past years information, and in my mind, I was thinking if this deer is still alive, it's October twenty eighth. This is where he's going to be because he didn't change for two years. He didn't change. He's not going to change now. And and I was right. You know, I, I pulled the right lottery ticket that day because he, he did the exact same thing he did the year before and the year before that. Yeah. The only difference is I was right there that time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, it sounds like you got a good thing going for you. Congratulations on, you know, several years of, of success and, and being able to hunt with your wife and your friends and, and your kids and, uh, and, and moving forward in this journey that we as hunters like like to do. And, and so, uh, Tom, I just want to say thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, hop on the podcast and chat with us, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being a, a neighbor down here. I look forward to next fall. Absolutely. Time, uh, uh, going over intelligence of the neighborhood. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there you have it. Another episode in the books, huge shout out to Tom, huge shout out to each and every one of you, uh, for taking time out of your day to listen to the Nine Finger Chronicles, listen to the Sportsman's Empire. If you could do me a favor, I would really appreciate it if you would go check out one, two, three uh, other podcasts on the Sportsman's Empire uh, network. I'll be doing a lot more video. I said this last year, but this year I actually mean it. I'm going to be doing a lot more video type work, uh, and I'm going to be posting it to the Sportsman's Empire YouTube channel. So keep an eye out for that. I'll make sure I promote it on social and let you guys know. Um, if you are struggling with deer hunting, I want you to reach out to me. 
because I'm going to be doing something um, where I'm going to be bringing in people who might be struggling with a new property, with an old property, with just finding success and struggling, putting themselves in the right position. And we're going to break down some properties and we're going to talk about it and I'm going to document it and I'm going to post it and I'm going to see if people like it. And so uh, I really think that this will help people out and uh, make all of us better hunters because the, ultimately that's that's the whole point of uh, all this content. So uh, good vibes, right? Uh, Merry Christmas. Good vibes in, good vibes out. If you're going to be outside, man, wear your safety harness and uh, man, I don't know what else to say. I'm just in a good mood.